Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to this very special episode of the CEU Press podcast series to mark the 50th anniversary of the death of the poet W.H. Oden in Vienna on 29th of September 1973. We are joined today by biographer and historian Michael O'Sullivan, who has written a book to mark the anniversary. Michael is a well-known biographer who has published several biographies, including that of Mary Robinson, Ireland's first woman president, also a higher praise book on the English travel writer Patrick Lee Fermor. He is also an authority on Hungarian history in the early 20th century. His latest book, and the one that we will be discussing today, commemorates a close friendship between the well-known poet W.H. Oden and a not-so-well-known friend of Oden's, Stella Mussolini. She was an Anglo-Austrian writer whose friendship with Oden when he lived in Austria was important to him on several levels. Mussolini was a formidable intellect, a historian, and a former operative for MI6 in pre-war Vienna. She was also an aristocrat, hence the title of the book, The Poet and the Baroness. Michael, first of all, welcome to the podcast and to our audience who will, of course, know about W.H. Oden, but maybe not so much about Stella Mussolini. Could you introduce her to our listeners? Yes, I'd be delighted. Uh, When I first met Stella, I was 22, and she was in her early 70s. Also, unfortunately, she was in the early stages of Parkinson's disease, but she bore that uh, in a very sanguine manner. She never complained. She was really the essence of that old notion of the English stiff upper lip, which never complained in public about your problems, and she certainly never did. What I found extraordinary about her on my first meeting, and you must remember that I was extremely nervous because here was this great friend of W.H. Auden's, my hero, who I was never going to meet because he was dead when I was, he died when I was at school. So here was his great friend, and I saw that she immediately tried to put me at my ease, and I also saw that she had an incredible intelligence which she wore very lightly and it was combined if you like with an impish sense of humor and i found that combination completely irresistible and as luck would have it we did become very good friends after that first meeting but just to fill you in on her background which you've asked she was born in 1915 in Dale Castle in Pembrokeshire, which was known as, still is today, I believe, as Little England. She was born as Stella Lloyd Phillips into an Anglo-Welsh family of landed gentry. She could trace her ancestry back to the year 800 to Rory, King of Wales. She took that with rather a large pinch of salt. And I remember pointing out to her once about her ancient lineage, and she said, oh, don't take any notice of that. Remember what Oscar Wilde said about ancient lineage, that the best thing the English have ever done in fiction is the peerage, and you should always take it on a train with you if you want something amusing to read. But uh, she did come from a very privileged world, a world of servants, and she had a French governess whom she absolutely despised and couldn't wait to be rid of her. So at the age of 11, she convinced her parents to send her to Morven Ladies College, which educated such diverse characters as Princess Alice and Barbara Cartland. 
she first came to Austria, or as she used to pronounce it, Austria, in 1936 to stay at uh, Brandhof Castle, where she met lots of um, sort of her own class amongst the Austrian um, nobility. If I would were to describe her physically, I would say she was tall, slim, she had a very high forehead, and she was always elegantly but very, very simply dressed. She spoke in this very received pronunciation, is what it was known as, uh, accent, which once defined a whole class in England, but is frowned upon now. And when she used to broadcast on Austrian radio, and she would pronounce the word Austria as Austria, David Hermges, who was her producer, used to say, now, Stella, you must tame it down a bit. This is this is um, for um, a, a non-English speaking RP audience, and she always enjoyed telling that that story. But about ten years after her first visit to Austria, she married Baron Johann von Muslin, hence her title Baroness von Muslin. He was known as by the diminutive Janko Muslin. He was a journalist. He had a books program on Austrian television. He was an agriculturalist. Uh, he was ardently anti-Nazi during the war. His father, Alexander von Muslin, played an extensively important role in Austrian history because he was the man who wrote the ultimatum to the Serbs after the assassination of Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo. And it must have been quite a difficult task for him because part of his ancestry was Serbian, but he was loyal to the Habsburgs and, of course, had gained considerable preferment under their rule. In 1938, Stella was recruited in London by MI6, and she was sent to work undercover in the passport office. She told the historian Philip Mansell once that, by day I issued passports, but by night I danced. And of course, that wasn't really true because she was doing some very serious undercover work. And she actually was responsible for issuing passports to several Jews in Vienna at the time who were in considerable difficulties. And uh, it was around, of course, the same time when Raoul Wallenberg was operating in Budapest. And a, a little time before Thomas Kendrick, who was um, MI6's chief spy in, in Vienna. She has published two very important books. The first one is called Vienna in the Age of Metternich. That's that sort of 33-year period after the Napoleonic Wars, when Prince Metternich, I suppose, could be described as primus inter pares in the world of European diplomacy. It was highly praised by the critics at the time when it came out, and it's still highly considered by historians. And her second book, uh, Austria, People and Landscape, uh, has a foreword written by W.H. Auden, which makes it quite a collector's item for, for many people. But what it is, it's a riveting tour of each of Austria's provinces, and it sort of brilliantly details the eccentricities of the Austrians rather lovingly. She did love living in Austria, and she did love and understand the Austrians very, very well. Auden wrote to her when he read the book uh, in proof, and he said, my dear Stella, my goodness, how learned you are. And so we can see how these two great intellects might so very easily become great friends, as indeed they did. Yes, thank you. That's a fascinating introduction to 
but sounds like a fascinating woman. Before we talk about their friendship, I want to ask you a bit about your own association with Odin. You mentioned to me before that your fascination with Odin goes back to your days at Trinity College Dublin. Can you tell us a bit about how you first became interested in him? Well, yes, my, my, my interest in Auden was sparked when I was in my rooms in Trinity College, Dublin, on a very wet Irish Sunday afternoon. And I picked up the Observer newspaper and I found that they were running an extract of the first biography uh, written uh, on W.H. Auden by a man called Charles Osborne, who was a musicologist and a friend of Auden's. And while I had studied Auden's poetry. I was in my final undergraduate year and I was looking for a a subject to do research on and it sort of came like a flash of lightning, bolt of inspiration that here was going to be my subject and it was and I sort of 40 years later, I've never looked back. My Professor Norman Stone once said that it's impossible to have a conversation with me without somewhere I will mention uh, or quote W.H. Auden. But he did add, uh, however, it's never boring. So that, that's really how I came to um, have this passion for Auden. If you go back to nine, 1983, we find you in Vienna. Could you tell us why you were in Vienna and what happened during this period? Yes, well, it was one of those very happy accidents. The year before, I'd been to a major exhibition in Paris to mark the centenary of the birth of James Joyce. And a friend of mine called Patrick Healy was reading nonstop over a period of 24 hours, Finnegan's Wake. And on the sidelines of that event, I met a translator who was living in Vienna called Lisa Rosenbaum. And she told me that there was an international ordnance society in Vienna. That was the first I'd ever heard of it. I had no idea, and I was absolutely delighted to hear it. So she put me in touch with a man called Peter Müller, who was then the press referat or press secretary of the Bundesdenkmalamt in, in Vienna. And he was running the ordnance society. So I wrote to him, and he wrote back, and he invited me to Vienna to mainly to have a look at the Auden sites, as it were. And one evening we were in his flat and he had this rather marvellous wine decanter which belonged to Maria Teresa and it had two two glasses to go with it and so he filled it up with wine and he said I have a great idea why don't you do an Auden exhibition here next year to mark the 10th anniversary of his death so in what I call this high moment of camperama drinking wine out of Maria Teresa's glasses we toasted the idea of the exhibition and that's how the Auden exhibition happened at that time and it received huge press coverage. It was generously supported by the British Council, by the Austrian government, by several institutions, including Oxford, Cambridge, the Benjamin Britten Foundation, the Henry Moore Foundation. And I I think I'm right in saying that it stands uh, as perhaps the only major exhibition ever held to mark Auden anywhere in the world. And for that, I'm eternally grateful to Austria. I love that story about toasting to these glasses <laughs> that used to belong to Maria Teresa. Yeah, yeah. Well, Peter loved a bit of fun. At this point, you are in your early 20s and you organised this exhibition. As you said, this, had, this was a great success. From what I read in the book, you also met some very famous people during this exhibition, including Leonard Bernstein. Yes, uh, yes, that's right. 
It's extraordinary the people who turned up because it was held in the Künstlerhaus, which is one of the major exhibition spaces in Vienna near the Musikverein. And as it happened, Bernstein was in Vienna uh, staying at the Bristol Hotel and he saw the sign for the exhibition and he just wandered in. And I recognized him and I went over and I said, Mr. Bernstein, you're very welcome. And he said, this is extraordinary. What's going on? And I explained that I, I was a postgraduate student at Trinity College Dublin who put this exhibition together. And he um, he said, well, will you take me around? And I said, I'd be honoured. So for the next hour and a half, he went through every exhibit with incredible interest and detail. Remember, of course, that he was a friend of Auden's. He's I think his second major work is called The Age of Anxiety, based on Auden's poem of the same name. They knew each other, they were friends, and they had collaborated. And he did miss Auden very much because he saw quite a bit of him in New York when Auden lived in New York. So um, there was one hilarious moment when, as part of the exhibition, I had a documentary on Auden made for the BBC, and it was playing on a loop all the time, all day around. But the end of it is Auden's funeral. And you see the Kirchstetten brass band, a small provincial band on the screen, but the soundtrack underneath is a full orchestral version of Siegfried's funeral march. And Bernstein looked at me and he said, gosh, he said, that's not bad for a local brass band. <laughs> because... Anyone looking at it might for a moment be fooled into thinking it was the Kirkstetten Brass Band. And another person who turned up was uh, Stephen Spender, who, of course, was one of Auden's earliest friends from university. And he was then the Poet Laureate uh, of England and had the rather grand title Professor Sir Stephen Spender. And I had the pleasure of bringing him round to all the old Auden haunts in, in Vienna. And also, the thing he was principally interested in was the miners' strike in England at the time. And of course, it was pre-internet. Every day we went round to various press offices to get the dispatches with news from the miners' strike so that Spender could be up to date. I think Auden would have been highly amused that um, Spender was still, uh, as it were, at least sort of true to his earlier left-wing leanings. But that was just sort of a handful of the people that turned up. It was a very interesting time, actually. No, that sounds fascinating. And I absolutely love these stories. I, I could listen to this for quite a long time. But I'm also... Can we talk about the relationship between Auden and Austria? So why did this major poet with a huge international reputation move to what is essentially a tiny farming village in lower Austria near Vienna? Well, um, it's not an easy question to answer because, well, uh, the, the problem with Auden um, at this time is he, he was—he seemed to be forever looking for a home. He never really had a home of his own since he was a, a child in England. In was born in 1907, so in those early years. And by the way, of course, he went to—he was sent away to a prep school and to a public school, so he had very little time at home. And he lived in Berlin. He visited China during the Sino-Japanese War. He was in Spain during the Spanish Civil War. He was incredibly travelled. He finally had a 10-year period on the island of Ischia in a little fishing village called Forio, which he absolutely loved and was extremely happy there. Um, and he rented a house in the village. But it, it, it suddenly 
around 1956, it became popular with what he considered unfashionable uh, English homosexuals. Not that he had any problem with homosexuality because he was gay himself, but it was the type of people who were turning up there that sort of got on his nerves because um, they had nothing to say. But as Samuel Beckett said, it uh, didn't prevent them saying it. And uh, he, he needed, he really needed to get out. He'd had enough. And by great good luck, he won Italy's biggest prize at the time, the Feltrinelli Prize, which in today's money would be worth about $300,000. And this was in 1957. It was a vast amount of money. So he decided that he would buy a house somewhere. And he said, what I want is a German-speaking, opera-loving, wine-producing country. So bingo, he hits on Austria, and he receives a letter from an old friend of his, a woman called Hedwig Petzold, who lived in Kitzbühel. And he, he, he stayed with her when he and his father and brothers went to stay in her guest house in Kitzbühel when he was 16. And in fact, he lost his virginity to Hedwig Petzold. And they kept in touch all along. And she sent him a clipping from a newspaper with an advert for this Beatrix Potter-style cottage in this tiny Austrian village. So he went to see it, and he just bought it. And there began his relationship with uh, Austria. It wasn't always an easy relationship. For example, a couple of years after moving, he had huge problems with the Austrian uh, tax authorities because they sent him an enormous bill. And this is where his old friend Stella came in uh, useful because she guided him on all the issues of officialdom that he came up against in, in, in Austria. And he wrote the most wonderful letter to the Austrian tax authorities, which must be one of the greatest statements in the history of letters written to tax authorities, in which he explained how poetry is written and constructed and how it does not depend on a poet living in a particular place. And he began it by saying, gentlemen, I earn not a penny in Austria. On the contrary, I spend a fortune. And it became a huge scandal. The prime minister at the time, Bruno Kreisky, became involved. He got the tax bill reduced to a level that Auden found ex acceptable. But, you know, basically, he, he was very he was very happy in that, in that village. But people had no idea who he was. They, they had no idea that he was a giant of English letters. They saw all these exotic people arriving. They saw him tipping largely in the local inn. So they just, to, to, to them, he was just her professor. And that's the way he liked it. He loved that relationship with that village. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's comforting to know that even Odin had issues with bureaucracy or the tax office. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you also mentioned that there were these people visiting him and the villagers didn't really know. But while he was in Austria, did he also meet some local luminaries or Austrian intellectuals? And if he did, then do you have any particular stories about this that come to mind? Well, yes, Stella was always trying to introduce him to... Um because she knew everyone in the world, of, uh, the intellectual Austrian world. One of the people she did introduce him to was the historian uh, Friedrich Heer. He was a rather brilliant medievalist. He uh, was also extremely anti-Nazi, was arrested by the Nazis after the Anschluss in 1938. He wrote 
brilliantly on the medieval world. In fact, I think his first book in English was called The Medieval World, published around 1962. And he wrote a, a wonderful book called um, called Gottes Erster Liebe, God's First Love, which is a history of the Jewish and Christian re- religions over 200 years, which was, again, hugely received and well-received by the, by the critics, and a, a book that uh, Stella actually gave me. And um, he was born around the same time as Stella, so they were roughly the same age, and he'd been at school with um, Stella's husband. But the difficulty was that, and this was not, this just did not apply to Friedrich Hill, it applied to many of the Austrian intellectuals. They were slightly terrified of his reputation because he just seemed to them to be giant in the world of English letters. And they feared most, of course, the, the, the quality of their English. But what they really should have feared was the quality of Orton's German, which was as bad as mine, absolutely appalling. But uh, they, they did meet and they did get on. And there were several other people that, that, that Stella introduced to him. And rather interestingly, Friedrich here was the editor of a political journal that's still running in Vienna today called Die Furche. And he was also the literateur at the Burg Theater. So they skirted around each other for years, but eventually they met and became the best of friends. So it was one of the great intellectual friendships of uh, his time in Austria. So your book, The Poet and the Baroness, draws on letters from Auden to Stella and also on the journals that Stella kept before her death. Can you tell us something to us about its content? Well, Stella gave me uh, unfettered access to her letters and journals in 1984 when we first met. And what the letters show is just how much Auden depended on her to deal with, first of all, as I said, his insufficient knowledge of German. She looked over all the German references in his poems as he would present them to her. And then, as I also said, the the issue of dealing with uh, Austrian bureaucracy. But it was more than that. They became such close friends that he relied on her to deal with um, his at times rather tricky boyfriend, Chester Kalman, who would sometimes disappear from Kirchstetten into uh, the the seedy nightlife of uh, Vienna, as uh, uh, Stella used to describe it. And this elegant, beautifully dressed, tall, distinguished woman would go into the gay bars of the Linkerweinsäule to find Chester Kalman and to pull him out by the collar, literally. And she would say, now, Chester, it's time to go home. And then uh, he would go at her bidding. He'd go back to Orden. And this is all recorded in the journals rather than in... It's also recorded in some of the the letters. And a, there's a marvellous story about one of Chester's boyfriends who borrowed Orden's Volkswagen car and then proceeded to commit a bank robbery. And during the bank robbery, the car was shot at by the police, and it had several bullet holes in it. And Orton was so proud of these bullet holes that the next time he went round to lunch at Stella's, he brought down, he brought her down to see the car and said, look, look what I've got, a whole series of bullet holes from a bank robbery. He was like an excited child. I presume the robbers were caught. 
I, 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 I don't know. History doesn't relate, as they say, whether they were or not, but Auden's car certainly got it. Here I had a question, but now I really think that it would be unfair to ask you what's your favourite poem by Auden. So I'm going to ask you something else. Could you choose us a poem that's related either to Austria or to Stella for our listeners? Well, yes, um, he did dedicate... Um, there There's, of course, an entire book called About the House dedicated to his Austrian existence. But there is a particular poem written in 1971, I think I'm right in saying, in which uh, he dedicates it to Stella Mousseline, and it's called Stark Bewölkt, which I think means um, heavy cloud, isn't it? Heavy cloud cover or something to that effect. And you know, heavy, heavy cloud. And it was the summer of 1971 when I think there had been very little rain in uh, in Austria. And Auden was sufficiently English, still sufficiently English, to be uh, worried about the weather. And he found the weather a, a great source of conversation. And indeed, in some of his poems, a, a source of inspiration. Um, there was a friend of mine in Hungary, who once said that the English obsession with the weather, he was absolutely certain, had everything to do with the sinking of the Armada. Now, <laughs> how true that is, I don't know, but I'd, I'd love to have put that question to Orton. He certainly would have had an opinion on it. But I'll read a little bit from uh, Stark Bewölkt. So here he is, he's addressing the weather. He's an Englishman in an Austrian cottage with the curtains drawn, but looking out the window occasionally to see if the weather has changed. And it goes. Day after day we waken to be scolded by a scowl, venomous and vindictive, a flat, flowering Friday face, horrid as a hangover, and mean as well. If you must so disarray the heavens, at least you might let them rain. Water is always welcome for trees to take neat and men to make brandy or beer with. But no, we don't get a drop. Dry you remain and doleful in a perpetual peak. Who of what are you mad at? What has poor Austria done to draw such disapproval? The Beamtera, it's true, is as awful as ever. The drivers are dangerous. Standards at the Staatsoper steadily decline each year. And Wien's become provincial compared to the pride she was. Still, it's a cosy country, unracked by riots or strikes and backward at drug-taking. I've heard of a dozen lands where life sounds far more ugsome, fitter goals for your disgust. I needn't name them for you, whose glance circumspects the whole globe, ken at first hand what's cooking. And that poem he dedicated to Stella. Uh, she loved it. We talked about it uh, several times when I used to stay with her. Of course, she was greatly chuffed that uh, one of the greatest poets in the English language would dedicate a poem to her. But she was particularly chuffed that it had to do with the Austrian weather. No, thank you. That was beautiful. I really liked that one. Oden also dedicated, I think, which is one of the most famous elegies in the English language, to W.B. Yeats. 
Well, he had a peculiar relationship with WBS. It was uh, a love-hate relationship. He began by greatly admiring his uh, poetic oeuvre, but he uh, ended by despising his politics because Yeats had a brief flirtation with fascism. He wrote, uh, actually, the anthem for a fascist movement in Ireland called the uh, the Blue Shirts. But uh, as an Irishman, of course, one is immediately struck by one line in the elegy, which is, um, Mad Ireland hurt you into poetry. Now Ireland has her madness and her weather still. That line has particular resonance for me because his, um, he's really showing his understanding of the complexities of Irish history in the 20th century. Also, an outstanding notion of Yeats's flirtation with fascism. He says, you were silly like us. You, your gifts survived it all. There he's sort of, if you like, forgiving him, but he never really did. But above all, the, for his politics, that is, but above all the poem, well, it deals with the place the poet has in the modern world. He says, um, for poetry makes nothing happen. It survives of the value of its saying. And he wrote a wonderful prose essay called Public Versus the Late Mr. W.B. Yeats, uh, in which he really does show his extraordinary knowledge of contemporary Irish politics and his understanding of Irish history. And I think that is why it's one of the great energies of, of, of the 20th century. It's beautifully structured. It's, it's full of magical reference. But the, the really important thing is it gives Auden's own explanation of what poetry is all about. And for me, that's why I, I love it. I'd, I'd like, may I, may I read uh, from it if, if you have time? Yes, definitely. Uh, it's a long poem, so I'll just read uh, so, so, some extracts. Uh, I, I referred to one um, earlier, and it goes, You were silly like us. Your gifts survived it all. The parish of rich women, physical decay, yourself. Mad Ireland hurt you into poetry. Now Ireland has her madness and her weather still. For poetry makes nothing happen. It survives in the valley of its making, where executives would never want to tamper. Flows on south from ranches of isolation and the busy griefs, raw towns that we believe and die in. It survives a way of happening, a mouth. Now, I'm just going to condense the last bit because I want to get to the line that's so important. And it goes, follow, poet, follow right to the bottom of the night. With your unconstraining voice, still persuade us to rejoice. With the farming of a verse, make a vineyard of the curse. Sing of human unsuccess in a rap of distress in the deserts of the heart let the healing fountain start in the prison of his days teach the free man how to praise and in that very last line in the prison of his days teach the free man how to praise Auden is saying what he believes poetry should do and I was so happy as a young man, when I first saw his memorial plaque at Westminster Abbey in Poet's Corner, and it just contains that great line, in the prison of his days, teach the free man how to praise. It couldn't be better. No, it couldn't be better. And I think this is a really great point to conclude our podcast today. Just one more question. Was Auden any good at saying goodbye? Uh, the answer to that is no, he wasn't, because he could never, he never actually said goodbye. He said, if it were not for my watch, 
I wouldn't know how to be hungry. And he lived according to a regimented timetable. And he went to bed at nine o'clock exactly every night. Sometimes he would stand up from the dinner table, no matter how distinguished the guests were. And without saying goodbye, he would finish the sentence he was saying as he left the room. So on one or two occasions, he was known to quote a great line of Rainer Maria Rilke's, So leben wir und nehmen immer Abschied. And thus we live forever saying goodbye. Michael, thank you very much again for joining us today. Thank you very much, Andrea. It was a pleasure. For anyone who would like to buy The Poet and the Baroness, published by Central European University Press, all the links are in the show notes to this episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you do not miss any of our new episodes. Thank you. Bye.